My name is Sharon Salzberg, and I'd like to welcome you. Um, some of you just back from this morning, and <laughs> some of you from the great outside world. Uh, and on my left is Miosh and Kelly, and Susan O'Brien, and Joseph Goldstein. We'll be teaching this retreat together. And I often think, as I am just about to come into this hall, how much I enjoy that moment of moving through the room behind me, the upper walking room, and that sense of gathering that we're all doing. People have come from lots of different activities, and the bell rings, and we all just come together. We gather. I like it so much because I consider it as such a symbol of the joining together, the gathering together for a common purpose that is the meditation practice. Whatever it is we've been doing, we let go and we come together. There's so much energy poised here right now at the very beginning of this retreat. There's all of the physical energy that you've expended, especially those of you who've just come here today, and all of that effort. There's all the psychological energy, the energy of faith and trust, and even being willing to leave behind that which is familiar and to take a risk and to come to a rather unusual place like this. And there's the energy of interest, a willingness and interest to discover, to explore, to examine the nature of your own experience. And there's the energy of doubt, like what in the world am I doing here? And so much, really, has come together at this moment, at this point in time. And it's important for us at the beginning to welcome all of that, all of those different aspects of ourselves and our minds that we have brought here together. This is a quotation from the poet Rumi who said, How long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, never are airborne. By let the world go, Rumi means let go of our usual mode of being, our expectations, our preconceptions, our confusion. Let's make a new beginning. Sometimes at the beginning of retreats, I think of a story, this thing that happened to me once when I was in Israel. I had gone to Israel to teach, but I had a few weeks before the retreat actually began when I was living in a friend's apartment in the old city in Jerusalem. One day, some friends and I were walking through the old city in the marketplace, which is a series of very narrow alleyways that are just teeming with life color and sound and goods for sale. So we were walking through this marketplace when one of the shopkeepers saw me and called out to me, oh, I have what you need. And it was the most amazing experience because I actually stopped and I felt this thrill go through my entire body. And I thought, wow, he has what I need. And I actually turned and began walking toward him until I had the 
sudden realization, wait a minute, first of all, I don't need anything. And second of all, how would he know he had what I needed? But I often think of that story because I believe the world is calling that out to us all of the time from so many different directions. I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And we internalize that message to be, I need something. I do not have enough. I am not enough. I am in a state of deficit, of lack. And we follow those voices. They promise so much. We follow first one, then the other, then the other. It becomes quite dizzying as we run around. So we come to a place like this, a situation like this, just to get a break, to stop, to be able very powerfully, perhaps for once in our lives, to turn away from all of those voices and the insistence of those voices that other people know what we need. We come together in a place like this and we turn inward with the question that I believe is actually at the basis of spiritual life, which is, what do I need in order to be happy? Do I need anything right now in order to be happy? So we come here very much in that sense of relief and enjoyment and exploration and intimacy with our own experience. When I first went to India to practice, one of my teachers, a man named Manindra, said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it was actually a wonderful thing to hear because it was tremendously empowering for me. I felt like for once in my life, really for the very first time, someone was looking at me and in effect making the statement, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of confusion and alienation and unhappiness and aloneness and fear. You can. We come together in a situation like this because, in fact, we can. And we need a supportive environment, and we need to understand various tools various techniques, so that we can use them for ourselves in that pursuit. I went to India <clears throat> when I was a college student at State University of New York at Buffalo in 1970. There was a program at the school where you could apply to spend a year in another culture and then theoretically come back to finish your final year of school at Buffalo. And my joke is often that it being Buffalo, New York, many people went and not that many people came back. And I filled out an application form because I very much wanted to learn how to practice Buddhist meditation. I filled out an application form to go to India, which was accepted by the department, and off I went. I also had a lot of ideas and fantasies about the great, transcendent, magical, supreme, fantastic, extraordinary, unusual meditation practices that I would be given. About maybe three months after arriving in India, 
I went into my first intensive meditation retreat, never having meditated for one single moment before then. And much to my amazement, the first meditation instruction that I was given was, sit down and feel your breath. I thought, feel my breath? I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. What happened to the extraordinary, fantastic, secret mantra or whatever it was that I was hoping to get? So then I thought, well, you know, I've never practiced at all, not even for a single moment. So this must be the kind of very elementary instruction that they give to beginners. And when I get good at this stuff, you know, really like master it, um, then my teacher will undoubtedly take me aside into some other room and say, well, you've made it. Now I'm going to give you the real instruction. Now I'm going to give you the thing that you weren't really ready for before, but now you are. And it's going to be amazing and secret and fantastic and extraordinary and all of those things. So I waited and waited and waited and waited. And it's been, what, 28 years now. <laughs> and the strange thing is that when I go to practice in this tradition, in this lineage, it's still the same instruction. Once I was telling the story to a group in California and somebody said, well, maybe everybody else got the advanced instruction and it just you didn't because you never had that great breakthrough experience. Which I don't think is true, but of course it's not true. Um, and it points to the power of simplicity in some ways. In an experience like this, we're really developing certain qualities of mind, like concentration, like mindfulness, like kindness, compassion. Rather than gearing our efforts toward somehow obtaining and then keeping a certain special experience, we're trying to shine the light of awareness on all of our experience. And we use simple objects like the breath in order to collect our energy, to come into the moment, to have a feeling for a non-interfering, a non-reactive awareness. When I first started, I thought that the great breakthrough experience was going to look like sitting bathed in a, a shower of brilliant white light. So I waited and waited and waited, but I didn't have any white light. What I had was knee pain and sleepiness and a whole host of other kinds of experiences, many of which were very enlivening and important, it made me understand things in the kind of disentangling of my heart from the patterns of suffering that I was involved in. But I was quite disdainful of all of them because they weren't that one thing that I was sure was supposed to be happening. And it was only later on that I began to understand much more the essential nature of the process. You can liken meditation practice to going into an old attic room and turning on the light. When we do that, it doesn't matter if the room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We go in and we turn on the light. Not the kind of supernatural white light that I was craving, but the light of wisdom, of awareness. 
What happens when we turn on the light is that we see everything. We see these beautiful treasures, and we can be filled with wonder at the discovery that these treasures actually exist in our very own attic. We also see these rather dusty, neglected corners, and we think, ooh, I'd better clean that up. And we see these frightening or unpleasant objects, and we might think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that doing here? We see everything. Because in effect, we see everything that a human being can feel and know, hope for, wish to reject. We see the whole range of the human mind, which is our own mind. We see everything. The nature of the meditation practice is how do we see it? It's learning how to see clearly, directly, for ourselves in an intimate, powerful way, what is, not getting caught in so many concepts and comparisons and judgments. And it's seeing with compassion. It's seeing with love. Awareness or mindfulness can go anywhere. When we turn on the light in that attic, it's not to pick and choose but it's really to come to know the whole range. So it's that knowing, that acknowledgement, that recognition, that is mindfulness. So there's no wrong experience one can have. There's nothing beyond the pale. There's nothing that connotes a kind of failure. Because our effort is really to be aware of everything. And awareness is everywhere. So it's completely possible for us. As St. Augustine once said, if what you want is everywhere, you don't need travel to get there. You need love. So that's what we're talking about in meditation practice. We're talking about a radical transformation of our relationship to what is. the techniques of which are very simple, in fact. Things like sit down and feel the breath. And even maybe more elemental than that is the ability, once we have sat down to feel the breath and we feel one breath or two breaths or three breaths and we wake up in Paris having had a delightful vacation for half an hour, It's the ability, right in that moment, to recognize what has happened and to begin again. I've traveled in these last almost 30 years of practice from the craving for brilliant white light to a greater understanding of the simplicity of the techniques to actually feeling that a great deal of the transformation, a great deal of the manifestation of the Dharma happens in the moment when we've been distracted and we realize it. Because if we can let go and begin again, then what we are expressing in that moment is an understanding of that power that we can, in fact, do that. 
It's an expression of forgiveness, of compassion, coming back into the moment, letting go of entangling thoughts. There's a tremendous amount that happens right there. But who would have guessed? When really all you want when you sit down is brilliant white light. In the course of the retreat, many, many, many experiences arise and pass away. It's just the nature of things. And our work is to be as close as we can with as much awareness and kindness as we can to our own experience. If we can remember that, then in fact, it can be quite a lot of fun. This is from the Taoist tradition. It's a poem which says, enjoy yourself, relax. Stop setting snares, get delicate. Relax and follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin, Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. So we come together here in a way, to stumble along as upright as we can. Just let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. Let all of the experiences come and go. Don't worry. It's not a question of right or wrong. It's not a question of succeeding or failing. It's a question of wholeheartedness and presence and intention and kindness. Come together here also as a community. We come together to make a friend of silence. Many times, people who have not done retreats before think of silence as the particular burden they will have to bear for the seven days or ten days or whatever. And sometimes one's friends say, I don't think you can do it. You know, I don't think you can be silent for that many days. But in fact, when most people look back at the retreat, one of the things that is treasured the most is the silence. Because it's like for once in our lives, we don't have to present ourselves to anybody as anything, as good or bad or wonderful or terrible. But we can use all of our energy to come within ourselves and to touch deeply into our own experience and to learn to trust that. So it also is a great relief. Traditionally, we begin retreats by undertaking what are known as the three refuges and the five precepts, which in a way provide the context for the unfolding of all of our experience. Three refuges are the refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. The Buddha is considered not just the historical being, but also a symbol, a symbol of a spiritual friend, what it means to have a mind that is 
expressive of boundless compassion and steadfast wisdom and radical courage in all situations. In this tradition, I've always been touched by the fact that the Buddha is considered to have been a human being. So that some of the questions he asked about life were the kinds of questions that one looking deeply would ask about life. What does it mean to be born inside this human body, to be so helpless and so vulnerable and so dependent on others, and then to grow up and to grow older and to die, whether you like it or not? And if that's the case, if the body is going to unfold according to the laws of nature, despite our dissatisfaction or protestation, is there a happiness, a quality of happiness that can be found that isn't broken in the face of that kind of change, in the face of being so out of control of things? What does it mean to have a human mind? with the cascade of impressions and feelings and thoughts and memories and hopes and fears. Constantly changing so that we might wake up in the morning and we're full of delight and then by the afternoon we're really afraid. We're sad and we're happy and back and forth. Who is it amongst us that has successfully said, well, you know, I thought about it really a lot and I've decided No more grief, ever. No more fear, no more anger, no more anguish. Doesn't seem to be about a decision. It's not something we can control in that overbearing way. And so the Buddha asked as a human being, is there a quality of happiness, again, that isn't damaged, isn't shaken, isn't ruined, isn't marred by all of these changing states as they come and go. This was his quest. Where is that happiness? First, is there that happiness, and then where is it? And so we take refuge in the Buddha as the symbol of our own quest and the fact that as a human being, one can use the power one's own awareness to come to an understanding of just those questions or however our own questions manifest. We take refuge in the Dharma, which is sometimes translated as the teachings or the law, the Buddhist teachings, also means the nature of things. It's like taking refuge in the truth being able to align ourselves with a vision of truthfulness and understanding that that, in fact, is a refuge. We take refuge in the Dharma not in the sense of adopting a dogma or a set of beliefs or declaring oneself to be a Buddhist or not a Buddhist or anything like that, but rather as a willingness, a sign of our willingness to align ourselves with the actual unfolding of our experience and the deepest expression of truth as we find it, as we continue to uncover it. Once somebody gave me a a tape of the Christian mystic Hildegard of Bingen, 
who had written music. And I was, I was driving, actually, in my car. I was listening to the tape. I just had the strangest feeling that I'd heard it before, which I hadn't. And finally, driving along, confused for a while, I had the realization that, in fact, I had heard it before, but internally. That she had captured and articulated sounds that were part of my internal world that I had never been able to bring forth or bring out. And that's often how I think of the Dharma in the sense of the Buddha's teaching. It's an articulation, it's a language, it's a way of bringing out our own intuitive understanding that truly comes from our own experience. Which is, so we take refuge in the Dharma as a way of honoring that, our own capacity again for awakening, for not having to live a mechanical life, just following those voices that are crying out to us. But as a, a gesture of respect for the power of our own minds and the power of our own awareness. Then we take refuge in the Sangha, which is the third, which has a number of different meanings. Traditionally, Sangha means the community of monks and nuns who have preserved the teachings of the Buddha, preserved the Dharma throughout all of these centuries. <clears throat> it also means those beings who have practiced, who have been willing from the beginning of time, the women and men and even the children who have been willing to seek a deeper truth and not just stay on the surface of things, who have had that kind of strength of mind and that intense wish to discover for themselves. So often when I take refuge in the Sangha, I feel like I'm joining a stream of beings who have gone before me and in their example, I find a great deal of inspiration and a great deal of strength. And the Sangha also means this community here right now. It's almost like an act of solidarity. There are some things we can, in support of one another, bring forth even more readily than any one of us might be able to do all alone. And so we take refuge in the Sangha as a way of acknowledging that, that we are sharing this space, we are creating this community together, and that we are all able to help one another in this space, in this creation. And then we undertake the guidelines, you might say, of this community, which are known as the five precepts. These are ethical or moral guidelines that we undertake for the time that we are here so that it really can be a community of safety and friendship. These are, first, the precept to refrain from killing any living being. This includes insects and bugs and other such life forms. But rather using this time as a way of developing a reverence for life and a sense of our connection to the boundlessness of life. 
in all of its various forms. We undertake a precept not to steal, which means not to take that which has not been offered, but rather to develop a sense of contentment, to be at ease, to have faith that what has been offered is actually enough. We undertake a precept for the time that we're here not to engage in sexual activity at all, but rather to use all of our energy in this pursuit of greater awareness. We undertake a precept to refrain from lying, which we extend for the time that we're here into silence, except for when you're speaking to one of us, really to enjoy this exquisite opportunity not to have to talk is quite wonderful. And we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or create heedlessness. It means no drugs and no alcohol. But again, using the actual nature of the mind in support of this exploration. There are many reasons that we take these precepts. Some of them are communal. It's very beautiful to be able to be here and not to be afraid. Not to think, well, you know, I better lock my door because if I don't lock my door, then anything might happen. I opened the Metta retreat, which just ended this morning, and I told the story of how some years ago, very soon after we first opened, some of our friends asked us to hold retreats for their parents who were very worried about what their children were doing with this sort of bizarre new hobby. And so we did. We had a few retreats known as parents' retreats where they're hostile and um, uh, distur- you know, very anxious parents came to practice. And um, they were actually very wonderful experiences, although quite intense. But I will never forget how continually these people would be locking their doors behind them, and we don't have any keys. So somebody would have to run around and find a master key and open up the door, and then, you know, it was so sad just to see how people tend to live. And so amazing to think that we don't have to do that here. But some of the reason is communal, and some of the reason has to do with our own peace of mind, because all of those times that we do act in a way that's somehow out of harmony or hurtful or harmful, it registers in some way. And then there is all the ripple effect of the remorse and dismay and and so on. So here's an opportunity just to, in effect, play it straight, to again be very simple and to experience the freedom of that, which is quite wonderful. When we give the instruction, which I'll begin with tonight, just very briefly, and then tomorrow morning we'll elaborate on it, each day the instruction will unfold so that we begin with, guess what, (laughs) feeling the breath, And slowly over time, we extend that until by the end of the retreat, our practice is one of a more global and complete awareness of all of our different experiences. 
And I would just like to say that it's very well known in meditative lore that the beginning of a retreat is absolutely the most difficult time. Whether you've never sat before for one single moment or you've been practicing for 30 years, it's kind of hard in the beginning because it's a very big adjustment. Unless you lead a very unusual life, there's a lot of slowing down that happens here, just entering into the realm of silence. I would often think in the beginning of retreats that it felt like there were these two different voices inside my head. The first one would say, oh, well, there's nothing happening here. Let's go to sleep. And then the next one would say, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. And this torrent of amazing creativity and planning and thinking. There's a lot of that, especially in the beginning. And just naturally, that will quiet down some over the days. But what one has to beware of is the thought which says, oh no, nine more days exactly like this. The tendency we have to consolidate, to make a solidity where there is actually change and mutability and possibility and movement. The tendency we have to take a difficult experience in the moment and project it into an unending future. All of those habits of mind also become very clear and they're challenging. But that's part of our discovery that those thoughts may come and we can come back to the present moment. So have fun. Be patient. Don't worry. What I'd like to do now is begin formally. We'll do the refuges and the precepts. I'll repeat them, the refuges, as is traditional, three times, and the precepts once. You can repeat them silently to yourself. And then we'll do a short meditation and end for the night. Again, you can repeat silently to yourself. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha.
I undertake the precept to refrain from killing any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which has not been given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants. Now we'll sit together for a few minutes. When you sit, see if you can sit with your back erect without being strained or overarched. Because if your back is straight, your breath will be more natural and you'll feel somewhat less sleepy. Unless you're accustomed to sitting with your eyes open or you're really falling asleep, then just close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths and feel the breath, fill the nostrils, the chest, the abdomen, then release. Let the breath be natural without trying to force it or control it or have the perfect breath or a different breath. Just let it be. Let your mind rest in whatever area you feel the breath most distinctly. Perhaps it's the in and out movement of air at the nostrils or the rising falling movement of the chest or the abdomen. You feel just one breath at a time. And should you find your attention wandering, see if you can begin again, reconnect. Come back without punishing yourself or chastising yourself or trying to figure it out. But practice letting go and beginning again. Thank you.